What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this Tuesday episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we have a very special event for you. It's taken from our online subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus, and it features Ankit Panda, author of the brilliant new book, Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, Survival and Deterrence in North Korea. And he was joined by Dr. Patricia Lewis, head of international security at Chatham House, as well as columnist at The Times, Edward Lucas, who's also a regular host on Intelligence Squared. And together, they delved into the history of North Korea's nuclear program, what it tells us about the country and also about nuclear proliferation and weapons around the world today. It's a really interesting conversation and you'll hear questions from our live audience towards the end. And if you want to be part of our live audience in the future and have your name read out here on the podcast, we have a special offer. Just go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and use the code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and watch along all our upcoming events, including John Bolton, Donald Trump's former national security advisor, just days before the US election. A quick reminder, if you do enjoy today's episode and want to delve a bit deeper into North Korea's nuclear program, you can find a link for Ankit Panda's book in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Thank you for joining us at this Intelligence Squared Plus event. Our guests tonight are Ankit Panda, who is the Senior Fellow at the Nuclear Policy Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and also Editor-at-Large at The Diplomat, which is an essential reading for people interested in China's place in the world, East Asian security and related issues. And Ankit is the author of the new book, Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, Survival and Deterrence in North Korea. It's published by Hearst in the UK and OUP in the rest of the world. And I'm also delighted to welcome Dr. Patricia Lewis, who is the director of the International Security Programme at Chatham House and former director of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. Now, North Korea is never out of the headlines. We've just seen, I think, in the FT today, the ghastly story of a South Korean official whose burnt body was um, recovered after what seems to have been a failed attempt to defect North Korea. Also, what seems to be a sighting by satellite of a um, launcher for an intercontinental ballistic missile, which may feature at an upcoming military parade. But we've seen ebbs and flows of international diplomacy and, of course, the spectacular attempt by President Donald Trump to befriend his North Korean counterpart with a summit that aroused huge expectations, followed by 
echoes and waves of disappointment. Uh, but I'm not the North Korea expert. That's uh, that's Ankit and also Patricia. So, um, Ankit, you call your book Kim Jong-un and the Bomb. But, of course, North Korea's nuclear programme predates Kim Jong-un and will probably outlive him as well. Just start off by giving some background. When did North Korea first start looking at uh, nuclear weapons and why did they decide to devote so, so much resources and, experience and risk so much international pressure in order to develop that program? Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for that question, Edward. It's lovely to be here with you and Patricia. Uh, also, a big thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting me today for this event. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so North Korea's story with the bomb really goes back to the earliest days of the nuclear age, after the atomic <laughs> weapon was used against the uh, Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, curiosity around the world spiked about these weapons. Kim Il-sung, uh, the, the founder of North Korea and Kim Jong-un's grandfather, in 1952, he establishes an Atomic Energy Research Institute in the country, which is generally regarded as the institutional beginning of the North Korean nuclear ambition. And of course, uh, you know, it's not off to the races right away. Nuclear technology, nuclear knowledge in these early days of the Cold War, especially, are very limited. Proliferation by by other states takes a while. Uh, the Soviet Union, the UK, France, eventually China in 1964 uh, all developed the bomb. The North Korean bomb, of course, comes much later. They don't test a nuclear weapon until 2006. Uh, but what are they doing between 1952 and 2006? And uh, here we see the story of Cold War uh, alliances and cooperation. The North Koreans received quite a bit of assistance from the Soviet Union and China, neither of which were willing to transfer nuclear weapons technology outright to the North Korean regime. But certainly when it came to nuclear energy, uh, Kim Il-sung was very interested in collaborating directly with the Soviet Union. So uh, as early as the 1960s, technical collaborations between North Korean scientists and their Soviet counterparts were well underway. Uh, the North Koreans received their first research reactor uh, from the Soviet Union later that decade. And by the 1970s, they have started construction on their own indigenous design. And this reactor, uh, really uh, the Yongbyon 5-megawatt reactor, remains the center of attention in the North Korean nuclear program for a period of decades. And to answer your question about the second uh, issue, which is why they've invested the kind of resource, the kind of blood and treasure they have in their nuclear program, uh, here, you know, the subtitle of my book really starts to get to it. Uh, the North Koreans, of course, during the Korean War, found themselves... In a, in a position where they stood to potentially take considerable damage from the United States and South Korea, and they did. And they perceived nuclear weapons ultimately to be a, a very capable way of ensuring their survival. And so the language you look at from the North Korean regime in recent years, the way in which they describe their nuclear program, they, they basically see it as the ultimate guarantor of their survival in an international system that is fundamentally anarchic. So uh, that's that's where I think the North Koreans really um, get off with their nuclear program today. And Patricia, looking at it from the point of view of the international non-proliferation regime, when did people first start taking this seriously? It seems to have been, um, you know, it's been a concern for many years. But I think, but I may be wrong in this. My, my recollection is in the sort of back in the 1980s, people thought, well, they're way, way, way away from getting this. So, you know, let's, let's worry about other things. So how has concern grown and where are we now? Yes, you're right. I think in the 1980s, there were those who were getting increasingly concerned. And by the early 90s, there was an attempt for a denuclearized Korean peninsula. 
And throughout the 90s, there were all sorts of attempts to set up a deal, not dissimilar in some respects from the Iran deal that we now are embroiled in trying to sort out. But it, it, the idea was that there would be a, a, a Korean Peninsula Energy Development Organization. Korea would get, North Korea would get peaceful nuclear reactors, reactors that were more proliferation resistant. And that was sort of going along with fits and starts you know, getting rid of IAEA inspectors, for example, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and um, just generally having a, a, a typical negotiation, which North Korea was behaving well sometimes, badly other times, and some of the others as well. But then in the late 90s, everything started to fall apart. And uh, we started to see quite different behavior, I would say, all round throughout the international community, not just with North Korea. And so that sort of, you know, the, the, the end of the process of you know, successful diplomacy or semi-successful diplomacy you know, culminated in 2017 when North Korea not only test-fired a, uh, or test-flew a missile that could actually reach the United States but also exploded the most powerful nuclear device, I think, tested anywhere in a quarter century. Um, that, that, um, um, Patricia, that, that was the wake-up call. That was the, the real the real moment when people started paying attention? Uh, well, I, I actually think it was more 2006 when they first tested a nuclear warhead. I think that was the, a, a major threshold. And then after that, it's really been about could they miniaturise their capabilities that could sit on top of a, of a missile and could that missile reach the United States? And that took us to 2017. And yes, that's when a number of people who thought, hang on a minute, I might be in range of that, actually started to wake up. But I would say the international community has been seized of this really since since the um, early 90s because it, the direction of travel was increasingly clear. Yeah. So, Anki, what's the purpose for North Korea behind this? Is it just about saying we will not be invaded, we will not be subject to nuclear blackmail, this is the, the ultimate insurance policy for the regime? Or do they actually have a sort of front foot uh, approach is this something they want to reunify the korean peninsula by force drive the americans out of the south change the balance of power in in east asia what's what's the balance between attack and defense in their thinking do you think absolutely i mean this is a this is a vibrant debate in in the community of folks who work on north korea pessimists do believe that the ideological themes that have really remained unchanged in north korea for 70 years uh, since the end of the korean war that North Korea will unite the peninsula under its own terms one day, there are people who believe that nuclear weapons will assist in that endeavor. Of course, if we look at the historical record in terms of how, nucle how useful nuclear weapons are exactly for coercion, uh, and we look at, let's say, lessons that we can learn from South Asia, from the Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War, uh, nuclear weapons are generally quite lousy as, as, as coercive tools, especially for territorial revisionism. Uh, so I tend to side with the, the other camp, which, which generally sees the purpose of these weapons for North Korea as really purchasing regime insurance. Uh, the, the survival that North Korea seeks is specifically of the Kim family line, which has now ruled the country for, for three generations. It is, it is a peculiar country in the sense that it is very much a, a Marxist-Leninist monarchy. There is no rule in North Korea outside of the Kim family. And the way to keep this system ossified, um, really, for Kim Jong-un uh, and his father and his grandfather, uh, nuclear weapons really do, I think, 
show North Korea that it is possible to have dramatic national defense effects emerging from these weapons. Uh, so this is a lesson that North Korea learned from, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union. The North Koreans also learned quite a bit from how China developed nuclear weapons to also protect against what Mao in the 1950s and 1960s perceived as unilateral American coercion with nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, there was once a time when the United States, uh, under Eisenhower and Kennedy especially, saw nuclear weapons as potentially coercive tools of its own. So the North Koreans are embedded in this broader history of, of, of countries learning just exactly what nuclear weapons are and aren't good for. So, you know, it is still early days in terms of North Korea being a, a veritable nuclear power. And um, of course, we might come to see things like what has happened in South Korea, um, in South Asia, since the uh, nuclear breakout of both India and Pakistan in 1998, which is we have seen limited wars in 1999, major skirmishes like in 2019. And there is fear that in the future on the Korean Peninsula, North and South Korea, and possibly even Japan and the United States may find themselves increasingly embroiled with smaller conventional conflicts with the North Koreans because of the of the nuclear shadow that now hangs over the Korean peninsula on both sides. But I suppose the, the, the big lesson, Patricia, from this is that nuclear breakout goes unpunished. You know, the North Koreans have done it both in terms of developing missile and developing a um, nuclear device, have done exactly what they've been told not to do, and they've basically got away with it. And that is you know, profoundly a you know, very interesting lesson for, for other countries and a profoundly unsettling one for those who want to uphold the non-proliferation regime. Well, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, in, in the 90s, there was this sort of carrot and stick approach. And the carrot were these reactors. And, you know, there there were mistakes made all around, I would say, and that completely collapsed. There were also some attempts in the late 90s to address the missile question with North Korea. Um, if, you, if you err too much on the side of sticks, what happens is that you create a, a, a situation and regime where there are very few incentives for negotiation and for giving up capability. If you err too much on the side of carrots, then yes, you do. You can stimulate a demand and, and create a situation which you, you didn't want to create. So you need something in the middle. Um, we have a, a regime, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. We have the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And part of the problem is that we need full compliance on all of those things from all states that are in them. And there are obligations on all states within those, including, you know, to actually enter into force with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And this would help bolster the international teeth, if you like, that could then put in place much stronger measures against North Korea. But there have been very strong measures all the way through in terms of sanctions, uh, in terms of the way the North Korea treated the International Atomic Energy Agency and so on. It just hasn't worked. And I think that is one of the big problems we have in the international community in a much bigger theatre of operations, if you like. And of course, that takes us to Donald Trump's initiative. And he looked at all the painstaking sort of bureaucratic, pragmatic, tiptoeing, carrot and stick diplomacy, which had gone on over the previous years and said, none of this has worked. Why don't I just meet the guy myself and you know, you know, deal with him face to face? And Anki, what, 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 what is the, uh, I'll ask you both this, but um, Anki first, what is the verdict now, do you think, as the, uh, on, on Donald Trump's sort of personal diplomacy with North Koreans? Is it a complete failure or um, is there anything that can be said that um, resulted from it? Well, there is something. I mean, narrowly, I think we can say that the turn towards diplomacy in, in early 2018 took us away from the precipice where we were uh, by the end of 2017. Uh, late 2017, I think very few people have come to appreciate this, but it was an incredibly dangerous time with North Korea. 
the possibility of an accidental nuclear exchange given North Korea's you know, itchy trigger finger, so to speak, a, a country like North Korea that is in this very rudimentary stage of nuclear development that has the delivery uh, vehicles that it needs, it has a thermonuclear weapon, but it doesn't necessarily have early warning capabilities to know when exactly the United States might attack. So it needs to interpret every signal in that environment as potentially the start of a conflict. That's a very risky recipe for um escalation. And we almost got there with the North Koreans. And of course, the turn to diplomacy did let out a lot of that steam in a in a way that prevented further escalation and, and really helped the crisis roll down. That said, you know, Donald Trump did do something quite radical by just meeting with Kim Jong-un. But the policy architecture that's really prevailed in Washington since January 20th, 2017, under the Trump presidency, is rather conventional. Patricia talked a bit about carrots and sticks. And over the last decade, I mean, really going back to 2006, uh, we have been relying quite a bit on sticks to show North Korea that pursuing nuclear weapons is not in, in its interest. And those sticks, of course, I'm referring to economic sanctions, which have been drastically ramped up after 2016. That was really the doing of the Obama administration on the way out. Uh, but the Trump administration really maintained that approach. It maintained sanctions. It, it, it supported additional sanctions against North Korea at the UN Security Council in, in 2017 as North Korea tested its intercontinental range missiles and its thermonuclear device. But what didn't change with the personal diplomacy, and here we get to the failure in Hanoi in, in February 2019, was the willingness of the United States to work with the North Koreans in a piecemeal way. So American policy now for across two administrations has been to manage the issue of denuclearization on the Korean peninsula, or really the disarmament of North Korea as a as a package issue. And that means that when, when negotiations begin, they are expected to conclude with a comprehensive agreement that would handle the totality of North Korea's nuclear program and delivery vehicles for its nuclear weapons. Uh, that, of course, has proven to be highly overambitious, unrealistic in the short term. And the North Koreans have made the case that it is time to begin by doing a small deal initially to recognize that you know, we can begin with a small agreement where the North Koreans would receive relief from certain economic sanctions in exchange for allowing us to inspect or verify certain aspects of their past nuclear activity in exchange for possibly even restricting mm -hmm. their testing of new systems. And none of this has happened. So, yes, Trump mm -hmm. met Kim Jong-un and, and there was personal diplomacy, but it really didn't yield results in my view. And Patricia, what's what's your verdict? Do you feel that the North Koreans think that they basically won the um, this personal encounter that they got the carrot, they got the sort of prestige and legitimacy of meeting an American president without actually having to do any of the things that he he wanted them to do? I don't think there are any winners in this so far. To be honest, I think Ankiti is absolutely right in in the characterization he presented. It was worth trying something new. It just wasn't done very well. I think that's the problem. Nothing else had really worked. All the old-fashioned ways of doing negotiation hadn't worked. You can revisit the history of it. You'll find a, a messy history, as, as always. But, it, but this hasn't worked either. And I think we are still in a very dangerous situation. It hasn't gone away. As, as I think uh, Beatrice Finn of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons says, we're one tiny tantrum away from nuclear war. And uh, I think that's something that we have to remember that in that standoff, prior to the diplomacy initiative, we were in quite a dangerous situation. Things were extremely tense. It could easily go back that way. And you, the trouble with nuclear weapons is that mistakes are not small, right? The, the outcome of a mistake is enormous. 
It's not like a mistake with a conventional weapon. This is why the stakes are so high. And of course, it, it, I, I would strongly commend, I'm sure you both read it, but um, Bob Woodward's book Rage has some really alarming passages in this, I think draw, drawn from Jim Mattis's experiences in the White House about quite how close we came to you know, war, which could have easily become nuclear war, um, involving North Korea and the United States, um, a couple, you know, just, just in the very recent in the very recent past. But I, I would just ask, we've talked a lot about North Korea and America, and of course they're the you know, two very important countries in this, but I think it might be worth just looking at China, because in, in a way China holds the keys to this, that they are by far the most important neighbour, they uh, most important trade partner, North Korea couldn't really survive without Chinese cooperation. Has the international community played the China card properly? Does China share our outsiders' views of the threat from North Korea? Anki, you go first. Yeah, so China and North Korea have a complicated relationship. The North Koreans, of course, benefit from China slow rolling the implementation of sanctions, allowing the regime to survive on whatever scraps managed to slip by the, the implementation of these sanctions. But that's not to say that North Korea is a Chinese client state. Kim Jong-un does not take his orders from Xi Jinping, unfortunately. Uh, I, think, I think our predicament would be much easier if that were the case, uh, at least on nonproliferation, uh, even going back to the days of the six-party talks in the early 2000s. And even earlier, China publicly professed to, of course, support a denuclearized Korean peninsula. I, I don't think that Beijing relishes having a nuclear-armed neighbor on its border, uh, even if that neighbor does cause trouble for the United States. And of course, now today, and amid this intens- intensifying great power competition between China and the United States and Asia, how China views North Korea, I think, continues to remain in, in, that, in that very tense space between a, a nuisance on the doorstep, but a useful card to play against the United States. And the North Koreans, for their part, also understand this. So this is something that Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, was actually quite good at during the Cold War, was after the Sino-Soviet split, playing the Soviet Union and China off each other. And today, uh, in, in many ways, the, the tensions between the United States and China are perhaps something that the North Koreans can themselves hope to exploit. One of the one of the things I think the North Koreans were hoping to get out of Hanoi was possibly the opening to a new kind of geopolitical relationship with the United States, possibly ending decades of enmity and then moving towards a different kind of modus vivendi, something like what the Vietnamese have uh, with, with the United States. Of course, um, 40 years after the Vietnam War, U.S.-Vietnam strategic relations are now in a very different place. China generally has two primary objectives on the Korean Peninsula uh, when it comes to North Korea. does not want the regime to collapse, creating a, a major outflow of refugees or, or other economically distressed people uh, who might flow across the border. And it also does not want nuclear weapons to be used on or near the Korean Peninsula. So in 2017, when tensions were incredibly high, China did actually vote for sanctions that, frankly, a few years earlier, nobody could have imagined Beijing supporting. Uh, so China has come a long way here. But when it comes to really unlocking the key to denuclearizing North Korea, I would say the Chinese no more hold the keys than we do. And, and really it would take, I think, a concerted multilateral effort that unfortunately just isn't possible in the geopolitical climate today uh, with, with China, Russia and the United States just having divergent interests uh, in, in Northeast Asia and elsewhere. Patricia, it's, it's often, people often um, make fun of North Korea and you know, President Trump himself referred to his Korean counterpart as, as little rocket man. But it, it strikes me from what Ankit was saying, the North Koreans actually have a very coldly rational approach to their, their role in the sort of competitive 
geopolitical arena that they find themselves in. Yes, I think so. And I think you know, China finds North Korea a, a real worry. You know, they, on the one hand, they provide a buffer uh, between China and South Korea. And if North Korea were to collapse and would fall to the West, then China's in a much worse position. On the other hand, you know, the last thing it needs is this irritating, rather difficult neighbour causing all sorts of problems with the very big strategic competitor, which is the United States. And it's, I think, probably getting in the way of all sorts of things that China would otherwise like to do in terms of its overseas engagement and diplomacy, offsetting some of its hegemonic approaches to the South China Sea. So, you know, I think China is would be very keen to get it sorted, but not in the way that the United States would like to get it sorted. And that's where we see see the tensions in, in how to move forward. But China has come a long way, as Ankit rightly says, about you know imposing sanctions on North Korea, which was an unprecedented move and signaled, I think, a real willingness to, to try to break this, this difficult problem. I think, you know, from... You, you asked earlier about whether or not, you know, who won in this. And I, I think North Korea's always stuck out for a peace treaty with the United States and, and has never been able to get that engagement. This is seen as, as too big a prize for the small steps that would otherwise come. And as part of the big grand bargain, I think, that was originally presented by President Trump, I think North Korea saw that as a possibility and that has, has left them now. So how that could perhaps be used to re-engage them, I don't know. A lot of experts on North Korea are very sceptical of, of this, of course. But it seems to me that, that if there's a big prize in the offing, it's, it is that. Are they sceptical that the North Koreans really want it or are they sceptical that the Americans could ever offer it? I think they're sceptical as to what they would get in return. So that you could you could give it and you could agree a big package and then of course if it wasn't complied with what would happen, and this yeah. is the big problem we've got in international relations more generally is this now erosion of that those obligations and in international law and the commitment that states have to honouring their word and we're having increasing problems with that across the board. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The other big country which we've scarcely mentioned is Japan, of course, which um, has its own um, experience with being at the receiving end of, of nuclear weapons and is deeply alarmed by the thought of the, the North Korean bomb. It has very painful experience with North Korea kidnapping its citizens and um, other things. For, for decades, Japan felt that it could rely on the European, on the on the American, sorry, security and nuclear umbrella, but. They really felt betrayed when 
Trump made his sort of unilateral opening. I think um, Abe pretty much learned about it from, from, from the newspapers. So, Anki, where does this leave Japan? Are they, are they are they still going along with the international efforts, or do they have to start thinking about their own bilateral relations and perhaps even bilateral you know, deterrence of, of, from, of against North Korea? Yeah, no, this is a this is a, a huge topic. Uh, Japanese security has certainly declined for the worse over the last five years, primarily as a result not only of North Korea but also China's activities in the East China Sea and the Western Pacific. Uh, the cornerstone of Japanese defense policy, as you said, does remain the American extended nuclear deterrent. For that to remain strong, any Japanese prime minister uh, should be able to rest his head easy at night, knowing that if push came to shove, America's nuclear weapons would serve to deter any aggression against Japan. So the Japanese, uh, of course, have had, like many American allies, a difficult time managing the Trump administration. Outgoing prime minister just uh, stepped down, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, of course, I would say managed to steer the ship as well as can be expected under the difficult conditions. Japan very early on, uh, in, in fact, in February 2017, received assurances from the Trump administration that the U.S. Uh, nuclear arsenal would be available to deter attacks against Japan. In the context of the North Korea threat, though, uh, Japan is now pursuing things that it never had in the past, including conventional strike with uh, conventional missiles, so also precision missiles that might be used after North Korea initiated an attack to then destroy North Korean facilities in a counterattack. It is pursuing new intelligence assets in space. Japan is increasingly looking at uh, building up its anti-submarine warfare capability over uh, concerns about North Korean submarines. It is investing heavily in missile defense to uh, protect Japanese cities from North Korean nuclear attacks. Uh, but of course, the the targets that the North Koreans primarily uh, are interested in in Japan are American bases. And here's where the North Koreans, you know, we've talked a little bit about their rationality. Uh, we start to see glimpses of what their strategy is, which is really the North Koreans would like to evict the United States from Northeast Asia, from South Korea, from Japan. Uh, and the way to do that is by targeting American military facilities with nuclear weapons on the soil of these countries, indicating to the publics and the governments of these countries that if they simply were happy to end their alliance with the United States, the uh, the nuclear sword of Damocles would no longer hang over them. And of course, this hasn't worked. The Japanese have been very happy to uh, retain their robust alliance with the United States. But this is certainly a, a, a growing and lingering concern for Japan. Uh, you hinted a bit at Japan potentially taking matters into its own hand and, and potentially pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, I think that's a little far-fetched, um, even though these debates do happen in Japan in hushed voices. Obviously, public opinion is a major obstacle to Japanese public is very much opposed to the idea of nuclear weapons, to the point of even opposing the American extended deterrent in many cases. And of course, uh, Japan itself has had a very uh, fraught experience with the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, for instance. Uh, so I don't see Japan pursuing its nuclear deterrent anytime soon. But of course, we do have an election coming up in the United States, and four more years of uh, alliance management under the Trump presidency might be a little bit too much for anyone, including Japan. Patricia, the experience of getting countries to give up their nuclear weapons or to slow down their nuclear programs is, I think one could say polite, politely, a bit mixed. I guess you know, South Africa it was a success story. Libya, people, Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons, but didn't didn't save his regime. Um, the Iran nuclear deal has already been touched on. What's what's the lesson if you look, if we were trying to think of a revived international? effort to offer some sort of nuclear deal to North Korea. What would be the lessons we should draw from the, from the past and how should we focus our, our efforts on trying to get something like that for, for the future? No, I think this is a, a really thorny 
problem. If we could just knock the Libya thing on the head. Libya didn't really have a nuclear weapons program. It had a twinkle in the twinkle of the eye of a possible program. It had a chemical weapons program, and that was, was really important to, to deal with that. But the nuclear side wasn't particularly significant, and using Libya as a reason not to go or to go in a particular direction doesn't really carry much water. Um, Iran is a much more interesting situation, I think, and one, I think, in which everyone has learned lessons. And I think Iraq in 91, and then, of course, in, in 2003, also has big lessons for North Korea. I think where we've got some real problems is in this concept of nuclear deterrence, and particularly when it comes to extended nuclear deterrence. You know, moving on from the end of the Cold War, we have a situation in which the question has to be asked, and I think this is what Japan has been asking, really, would you really use nuclear weapons in this situation, in that situation, in in, in a whole range of situations that you can imagine. Against North Korea, there's no reason to use nuclear weapons against North Korea, even if North Korea uses nuclear weapons first. You can use conventional weapons against North Korea, and that would probably gain you a whole load more support internationally if that were to be the case. But can Japan, can South Korea, can Taiwan rely on U.S extended nuclear deterrence. Can NATO allies at the moment do that? So I think we have some really deep problems over the whole framing of nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. And we're not, we're so allergic to talking about them. It's almost a theological problem in the West to talk about these things. And we really do need to open this up and start to have a really good look at what this means in today's world, because it's not the Cold War. But I, I infer from what you're saying that you basically think that nuclear weapons are useless. I wouldn't say they're useless. I just don't think they do what people think they do. I think we, they, have, they have changed their role, and I don't think we've changed our doctrines to match their role. And so we have this sort of almost emotional attachment to them and when we don't see them as weapons in the way perhaps we should see them and then work out what they can and can't do in that regard. So I think they've lost the power that they used to have in the framework that they used to be. We're in a completely different framework and I don't think anyone's fully understood yet, I'd include myself in that, what, they're, what, what they can do or can't do or should do or shouldn't do in that framework. And we're not talking about it because we're so emotionally attached to the whole idea of nuclear deterrence. And it's only an idea. We have to, to, to deter, you have to understand the mind of the other. And I, I just leave that question hanging in the air. What, what do we really understand about the mind of the other and who and what we're trying to deter with these types of weapons at the moment? Thank you. Uh, your insight into the mind of the other here. Um, and do, 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 do you feel an unholy fascination with nuclear weapons? Well, no, I think I think what Patricia says is 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 very important. I mean, um, one of the I think one of the sources of the tension and the crisis in 2017 was after 46 years, a new nuclear adversary has tested an intercontinental range ballistic missile capable of, of ranging the U.S. homeland. Uh, what happened 46 years prior, that was the year 1971, when China first tested its first intercontinental range ballistic missile, the DF-5. And of course, um, that introduced a second nuclear armed adversary after the Soviet Union. So really, this was a problem that uh, many folks in the American military establishment defense community just hadn't 
contemplated in a very long time. What does it mean to be in a nuclear deterrence relationship with not only a third country, but a country like North Korea, something, uh, you know, a country that Richard Nixon had memorably once called a, a fourth rate pipsqueak of a country. And now this country boasted a thermonuclear ICBM that it could deliver to New York City and Washington, D.C., and Mar-a-Lago in Florida, for that matter. So what did that mean for American planners? And, and, and you know, I think um, a lot of uh, officials, um, you know, many of whom I quote in my book, just hadn't really cut into the core of this question to, uh, to think about what it means. North Korea continuously, you know, came to be seen as a non-proliferation problem and wasn't taken seriously as a nuclear deterrence question. And of course, uh, deterrence, as Patricia correctly says, can be a matter of faith for many people that, uh, you know, there is this story about why the Cold War ended the way that it did, which was that because nuclear deterrence worked every hour of day uh, during the Cold War. And of course, uh, we know from accidents, we know from the Cuban Missile Crisis, we know from the 1983 Able Archer Scare, we know from other close misses that a lot of the time it wasn't deterrence that saved us. It was, in many cases, dumb luck. And in many ways with North Korea, you know, if we go back and we run the events of 2017 in a computer simulation, maybe a thousand times, I'd say maybe a hundred or so of those times, uh, you know, we end with a significant nuclear exchange in Northeast Asia and millions of people killed. So deterrence really, I think, requires work on on both sides. Uh, So yes, I think the mind of the other is very important. This is why I think, you know, in the book, I I take Kim Jong-un seriously as a a rational thinker and actor when it comes to his nuclear weapons program. You know, we had President Trump's former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, for instance, publicly say that he didn't believe that classical deterrence theory could apply to North Korea because Kim Jong-un, of course, you know, we can point to North Korea's poor record on human rights and its cruelty to its own people. But of course, you know, those were many of the same things that were being said about Mao and Stalin in the early days of the Cold War about why nuclear deterrence maybe couldn't be relied on and why the United States had to uh, outpace the Soviet Union in an arms race. Uh, So these issues, I think, do require close contemplation to really think through what it means that North Korea possesses nuclear weapons. Uh, And of course, North Korea doesn't have perfect information, right? We can talk about rationality, but rationality in the absence of good information about the state of the world doesn't really get you that far. And this is why I worry about things like the North Koreans really not having a sense of what the United States is doing around the peninsula. Uh, The North Koreans are chronically afraid of an American surprise attack, an American invasion, an American conventional attack on their leadership. All of these things, I think, require work to really manage. And this is really where a lot of our efforts need to lie in the coming years if we are to prevent a return to the brink uh, like in 2017. Well, a number of Really interesting questions are flashing up on my screen and in the remaining 20 minutes we'll do our best to get through them. Some of them touch on um, questions we've, uh, topics we've looked at already. But the first one is uh, an anonymous question but is about South Korea which of course is the other sort of half of this not quite unhappy marriage but perhaps one could say unhappy flat share, the two countries sharing the, the Korean peninsula. And the question is this, and it's for you, Ankit. How have the South Koreans felt about Trump's attitude towards Kim Jong-un? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, yeah, South Korea is a really big part of the story. And uh, we frankly haven't said enough about South Korean role in facilitating the return to diplomacy in 2018. South Korean President Moon Jae-in was really, I think, a major uh, source of lubrication for the United States and North Korea to really come together in the first half of that year. South Korean public opinion has really, I think, swung wildly on this issue. In 2017, Donald Trump was not very popular. Uh, In May 2017, of course, Moon Jae-in, a progressive, was elected after the former conservative president, Park Geun-hye, was impeached and removed from office and eventually imprisoned. And Moon was obviously very pro-North Korea, a a, a pro-engagement with North Korea. And of course, when 
Donald Trump went to Singapore and met with Kim Jong-un and, and supported President Moon's engagement agenda not long after Moon himself had met Kim Jong-un in April 2018 at the inter-Korean demilitarized zone uh, at the Panmunjom Peace Village, South Korean public opinion uh, uh, towards Donald Trump actually rose quite a bit, uh, that the fact that he was now engaging with the North Koreans was was regarded as a positive. And of course, as the negotiations died down again, South Korean public opinion has cooled on not only the Trump administration, but on the United States more broadly. Uh, South Korea, of course, remains supportive of the alliance. Um, but, uh, you know, these uh, generally, I think the South Korean public would like to see this issue managed in a peaceful diplomatic way. Uh, certainly nobody in South Korea or, or very few people in South Korea are eager to deal with the North Korean issue uh, through military means, particularly given that South Korea is on the doorstep. And if North Korea were to ever use nuclear weapons, it has plenty of short range missiles that could range not only Seoul, uh, the metropolitan area, which um, accommodates 25 million people, uh, but the entirety of the country. Uh, so for South Korea, this is really not only an existential matter, but really a matter for the future of the peninsula. Uh, and of course, South Korea also seeks to unify the Korean peninsula, of course, under its terms. And, and Patricia, there's a sort of paradox here, that the country which perhaps has the most to lose if this all goes wrong is South, South Korea. And yet they don't really have a seat at the table because they're not a, a big country or nuclear country and their diplomatic profile has been pretty much subordinated to the United States in, in previous decades. Do you, um, how, how do you see the South Korean perspective on this? So I, th- I think South Korea actually has a really important role to play in all of this. Uh, in the end, the uh, unification of the peninsula is a long-held goal from both sides. The the the, the one one persons, the one society, the, the the number of exchanges between both the north and the south, the the relatives, the the hurt, uh, the loss of each other. And the divergence of each other since the war has has been. It's a very big issue in both South Korea and, and North Korea. It's romantic, perhaps, uh, but it's it's there. And South Korea itself, I think, has a really important role. And I would say, in the last few years, it's played a much more important role than, say, Japan. I, I've been very concerned that Japan was being sidelined quite often in this discussion between. Trump, South Korea, North Korea and China. And I've I've worried about that in the longer run. But I think that South Korea has played a a really significant role. And we saw a lot of the symbolism of walking across the the DMZ, you know, the meetings between, between them. And that really matters in both countries in the end, I think, more than almost anything. There's an excellent question from Ewan Grant, which is, given all the tensions in the region, will Japan build nuclear weapons quickly but I think we've already touched on that so I'm going to move on to one from Paul Fletcher which is very uh, in fact three-part question the first is very simple a one word or one digit answer for both of you on a scale of naught to ten how scared should we be Patricia I know these binary things don't make uh, not, not a very not sophisticated answer but a simple one where are you on the one naught to ten scale I guess I'd be I'd be an eight yeah I'm I'm still really worried about North Korea I mean we can you know, COVID-19 has occupied a large part of our brain, and rightly so, uh, but North Korea is still there in my brain as a big worry. Yeah, I'd definitely give it an eight this year. What about you, Ankit? Yeah, I'd say I'd say uh, seven or eight sounds about right. I mean, um, you know, I, I would never say a nine or ten because I do want to push back on this idea that Kim Jong-un might wake up one day and decides he wants to use nuclear weapons. That's just simply not how the logic of nuclear weapons in North Korean strategy works. But there are incredible risks associated with the fact that the United States and North Korea simply 
aren't doing the work required to make nuclear deterrence work, right? This is not an automatic process. So figuring out peaceful coexistence with a nuclear armed North Korea is something that we need to put hard work into unless we want to find ourselves uh, back at the brink. Another uh, quickfire question from him for both of you. Which of the Kims should be considered most dangerous? I don't know whether that includes Kims who are yet to come, but of the Kims we've seen, who's the one who scared you most, Patricia? The, the, the one who's in charge right now, Kim Jong-un, right. of course. Yeah. Right, OK. Thank you. Well, I mean, in terms of peace on the peninsula, I think there's a case to be made for Kim Il-sung. I think uh, in his era, the ideological project of uh, forcibly uniting the Korean peninsula was very much taken seriously. I mean, there were repeated incidents with the United States, including the seizure of an American naval ship, the USS Pueblo, shoot down of an American reconnaissance aircraft, an assassination mission into into South Koreans, um, into the South Korean presidential palace grounds. Under, under Kim Il-sung, I think the the rules of the game in the Korean Peninsula were quite different. Of course, Kim Jong-un does have nuclear weapons to his name, so I think he's also got a very good case to be made here. But I think in terms of the strategic ambition, his grandfather certainly, I think, held out until his death the idea that the peninsula could be united. And the third of uh, Paul Fletcher's quickfire questions, um, whose victory in the US presidential election would make us safer? That's from a purely looking at the Korean issue. Patricia, well, we, no, no, I don't think anyone's an American citizen here, I should say, so we're all speculating on how other people should vote. But um, um, what, what's your view on that, Patricia? Oh, that, I think um, generally I would say that we need more stability, we need better working with, our, with, with US allies. And for that, I would go with somebody who probably had a steadier record in long-term ally partnership. So I'd probably go with... with potential President Biden. Also, also President Biden. Okay, move swiftly on from that then. And um, a very interesting question, an anonymous one here, which is, is preventing nuclear proliferation a Western goal or are nations like Russia and India also in agreement? Patricia, that's very interesting. The non-Western nuclear powers, how how do they see this? I think it's a really important question. So, I think things have really shifted and changed since the India tests in 1998, actually, because we had the project, if you like, the, the d- nuclear disarmament project, had the extension of the non-proliferation treaty in 1999, the comprehensive test ban in, in 1996. We had the halcyon days of the Chemical Weapons Convention and all the bilateral treaties. And then, and then we had the nuclear test in India, which then triggered the one in Pakistan. And then we had the Senate in the United States deciding not to ratify the Test Ban Treaty. And from then on, I think that whole idea of there being an inevitable diminishing of the salience of nuclear weapons has been, it's slowed and it's going in reverse now. So Russia, I think, uh, sees that nuclear weapons is very much part of its sort of status. It, it has very little economic clout. It has only the fear that it would instill and it Shows manifests all sorts of ways to show that fear. We've seen it in Salisbury. We saw it recently in, in, in Serbia. And I think that, you know, if you look at India in its own region and what's going on at the moment between China and India at the border, what has happened over, you know, many years between India and Pakistan at the border, India does see its nuclear weapons as being part of this framing and part of its security. It still has a no-use and no-first-use uh, policy, but, you know, I think it's, 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 they're all in a state of transition. And we seem to have rather foolishly lost the moment where we were going somewhere with this. 
and we seem to be back on a bit like the covid vac- uh, virus we seem to be going back up again when we had understood how to get things down and we don't know quite how to do it again it seems to me thank you tim researching your book did you get um, any sense of what um, india and and russia or for that matter any of the other non-Western nuclear powers, might, such as they are, might, um, th- thought of this? Well, so, you know, just um, listening to Patricia speak to these issues, you know, it just comes to mind that all of these countries, uh, Western, non-Western, every single country that possesses nuclear weapons today publicly says that they want to work towards a world free of nuclear weapons. The North Koreans do this, too. I mean, uh, you know, the word denuclearization, this is a big part of the book. What, does, what exactly does that word denuclearization mean to the North Koreans and to the Americans? To the North Koreans today, the word denuclearization very much means global disarmament, that they will give up their nuclear weapons when everyone else does. I mean, of course, uh, a country like India has serious misgivings about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which India argued created a class of nuclear haves and have-nots. The North Koreans might share some of that perspective. Of course, the North Koreans actually signed and ratified the NPT, whereas the Indians never did. But um, together, all of these countries claim to work, want to work towards this future. The difficult part is, of course, figuring out the details of how we get there. There's another question about China, which is has several aspects to it. One, does China actually prefer the idea of an unpredictable North Korea as a neighbour to a united Korean peninsula. But it follows on with this question of whether the Chinese are actually the best place to solve this problem. And maybe if we're moving into an era of America first and America abandoning multilateral diplomacy, perhaps under a putative second Trump administration, maybe these big international problems land firmly on the desk in Beijing. And how would a a Chinese-led international effort to deal with to deal with North Korea look like, Patricia? Yeah, I think that we, the trouble with our international system is that we all get used to the status quo, and I think China quite likes the status quo, and if we could keep North Korea as this buffer state forever, irritating though it is, it probably would. The problem is that, of course, the only sure thing about our world is that there will be change. And so we need to, I, I think, help China think through how to manage that change. I'm sure that China has got lots of ways in which it could do it, but I'm pretty sure that not all of those overlap with the way the United States would like to do it. And it it has to be a a joint enterprise. I think it has to include Japan. I think it obviously has to include South Korea. And North Korea has to have a say too, if this is to be managed in a way. And it has to be bigger than just the nuclear issue. And that's been clear, I think, for, for many decades. Hey, do you want to have any thoughts on that, Hank? Yeah, so I mean, the Chinese in recent years actually propagated this idea of a freeze for freeze, which was actually what ended up happening in 2018 and 2019, which was that the United States and South Korea would cease their military exercises, which North Korea claims to find very threatening. And in exchange, North Korea would cease to qualitatively advance its programs by ceasing nuclear testing and long-range missile testing. And the North Koreans held up their end of the bargain until they didn't, of course. After the talks collapsed in Hanoi, they resumed missile testing a few months after that. And the United States and South Korea um, recalibrated their exercises. But China genuinely wanted to see tensions reduced on the peninsula in, in of course, a little bit of a self-serving way by preventing the United States from keeping up the military readiness that it would like to with South Korea. 
But Beijing generally, I think, uh, earlier than that, favored multilateralism in the form of the six-party talks, and that was really the Chinese position. But I largely agree with Patricia. I think the Chinese are very happy to have this be an issue that is much higher on the American agenda in Asia than it is on their own. I think they have other priorities in the Asia-Pacific. And North Korea, as long as it can be contained and as long as its nuclear weapons are not on the cusp of being used or um, you know, the United States and South Korea and Japan are not on the cusp of starting a preventive war against North Korea, I think the Chinese are quite happy with the status quo. And it's interesting, we, we've talked a lot about Korean unification, and obviously you know, both, both Koreas want that. But there's, a question, there's an interesting question about its practicality, and given that there's such an enormous economic and social disparity between the two Koreas. Would the South actually ever want, and this would make you know, West Germany's absorb, absorbing of um, East Germany seem like a picnic, it would be so difficult. So is, is, is the cost actually too high? I, mean, I think it's hard to imagine North Korea taking, um, unifying with the South and sort of Northern-led initiative. I can't really see how that would happen. One could imagine a sort of bankrupt and desperate North Korea falling into the arms of the South, but would the South actually want it? Patricia, what do you think of that? No, I think um, one can only see that that, that would be an, uh, as a result of some conflict or some collapse of the state in North Korea. And I think everybody has been trying to dance around that to try to prevent it. And that's been actually one of the most difficult things uh, throughout all of this is a to think about how to help the Korean people, which is something we perhaps should focus on a little bit more right now, because they are in the most terrible situation imaginable that they stay within this regime and and continue to live the lives that they're living, which for many of them is pretty awful, or you know it's some terrible collapse and and it could be even worse. So I think that this is this is a, a, a real problem. I think that's what I said. I think unification is a romantic ideal. It was a romantic ideal with East and West Germany. We, we see it in other parts of the world as well. But we have to, I think, prepare for that possibility. I'm sure there are lots of South Korean planners who game this through all the time, but none of it's pretty. And we need to think about how we would assist in that process after whatever triggered it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, unification, I think is an issue that becomes harder and harder with the passage of time, particularly in South Korea, where you have a younger generation much more concerned with bread and butter issues when it comes to the national economy, less with the issues that motivated uh, their parents and grandparents, uh, who, of course, grew up with a very visceral feeling in the end of the Korean War, with family members split across the DMZ, with the notion of really living in a country that was split apart, uh, just as you know, you have the phenomenon of Taiwanization in modern Taiwan, for instance, where you have young Taiwanese identifying first and foremost as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. Uh, similarly, in South Korea, you have the younger generation much less interested in this question. Uh, that said, the South Korean government does have it does put significant resources into planning for this. Uh, of course, they don't envisage unification being an automatic process. There is this idea that we go from peace to a inter-Korean confederation where there is inter-Korean trade and travel and communication before eventually working working their way to this unification phase. I do agree with Patricia, though, that it is very difficult uh, to imagine this happening absent a traumatic event on the peninsula, be that the collapse of the North Korean regime or a broader conflict. Uh, so getting to peaceful unification without, without any friction whatsoever 
seems like a, a vanishing prospect uh, in the current environment. Well, we're almost out of time, and I, I don't think we've got... Uh, there's a, a question just arrived from Emily, who says, does North Korea's experience show that nuclear weapons work as a deterrent, or is it just a way of getting the West to pay attention to you? And certainly Intelligence Squared is paying attention to the, to the, to the issue. And, and I guess the fact that no-one's attacked North Korea shows that, it, to some extent, it's worked as a deterrent. But I want to ask you, just, just in, in, in the final... F- set, couple of minutes to give a, a sort of 30 second answer of where are we going to be this time next year is it will we still be talking about the same things do you see is, is there anything looming that you think we will, will be really critical in the way in which the korean crisis develops or changes patricia you go first your september 2021 where will we be yeah i think we we will still be talking about this i expect that north korea's capability and reach uh, might um, increase even more over the next few years um, it won't go away. I think a lot will depend on what happens at, in the US election in November as to what sort of conversation we're having with North Korea at that time. Very good. Ankit, get the crystal ball out and uh, have a look inside. Sure. One closing thought. So the North Koreans in recent years have tried to make their status as a nuclear power apparent to us as a fait accompli, that this has happened, that de facto North Korea is a nuclear power. And they, uh, their belief is that when the United States comes to terms with this, only then will it be possible for them to arrive at a favorable deal. And this, of course, was not the case in Singapore and Hanoi. Two weeks from now, the North Koreans are about to hold a major military parade. And I suspect at that parade, they will show us more missile launchers than we've ever seen at a single North Korean military parade. So essentially, Uh, signaling to the outside world that they have used the time since 2017 when they qualitatively completed the development of their deterrent to now quantitatively expand their their nuclear capabilities. And that, of course, will, I think, have a significant influence on whoever the next president is here in the United States on how they approach the North Korean question. So that's something I think very concrete to watch for. But by this time next year, I think we'll find ourselves dealing with the North Korea that's even more of a challenge when it comes to its nuclear capabilities than today. Well, we're out of time, so it just remains me, for me to thank Anki Panda, Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of the um, Kim new book, Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, Survival and Deterrence in North Korea. Let's hope that the emphasis is on survival for all of us in the years ahead. And also Dr Patricia Lewis, who's Director of the International Security Programme at Chatham House. Thank you very much for all the people who have taken part online, um, those who've tweeted us, and thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. 
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>